Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. Today on The Pursuit of Learning, I welcome Jordan Gray. Jordan has made it his life's purpose to help as many people as possible create their most fulfilling, passionate, love-filled lives. He's done this by writing books, publishing hundreds of articles, coaching, leading in men's groups, and teaching seminars. Jordan's writing has reached more than 80 million people. Today, we talk about sex, life, purpose, suicide, relationships, men's work, shadow work, and so much more. I had an absolute blast talking with Jordan, and think you will too. Jordan Gray, welcome to The Pursuit of Learning. I'd like to have a conversation with you that starts chronologically and then veers off here and there into deep conversations about what you have experienced at various points of your life and how that ties through into society today. Where I'd like to start is around your life that you write about from years 5 to 15, what you experienced there, how you interpreted those feelings, and how that culminated. Do you want to take the listeners on a bit of a journey there? Sure. This is the the fastest I've ever gone into a core wound on any type of media. So let's do it. Yeah. So five to 15, not my favorite years of my life, but in many ways, the most vital that really kind of shaped me into who I had to become in the world. I, yeah, experienced a lot of bullying between those ages, uh, both by my siblings, and then also uh, some people that I was in school with. And it basically just felt like a systematic crushing of aspects of my soul. And I think I needed to feel the depth and duration of pain and isolation and separateness and uh, feeling invisible. You know, I needed all those years of pain ultimately for what my life path became, or at least what I forged it into. And when you said what it culminated into, I don't know if you mean that for today or the end of the 5 to 15, but yeah, at 15 years old, I tried to kill myself. I had been some version of depressed for, I mean, yeah, I feel like when I was eight years old, I started to feel what was depression, but I, you know, was a child and didn't have the um, words to label it or definitely tools to do much with it. But yeah, there was an intermittent just feeling really down and like my pain was invisible and like I didn't matter for a good seven or so years. And yeah, at 15, I tried to take my life and, you know, it wasn't just a, I didn't just like wake up having one bad day. Like I'd been thinking about it for months. I like really wanted to succeed in doing it and I did not. Clearly I'm here talking about it. And uh, yeah, that was, that was that decade. And yeah. And, and that's the culmination that I was getting at. 
part of why I wanted to get there so early and yeah, we sorry, I dove right into core wounds. So later we're going to talk about shadow work. We're going to talk about core wounds because a lot of our listeners may not even know what a core wound is. So we'll we'll dive in there later. Part of the reason I wanted to get to this topic so quickly is with COVID, with isolation. I think it was Connor Beaton on Ben's Ben Goreski's podcast, the Evolving Man podcast, said isolation equals amplification. And so there's a lot of people out there who may have depression, may have anxiety, and it may be a fair amount worse. And so my one of the big fears that I have is we will see suicide on the rise. We we've already started seeing that, and I think it may only get worse. And you write a fair bit about reasons not to kill yourself. You talk about how you overcame it. And I think a reader reached out to you and said, how did you overcome your challenges to become the man you are today? And one of the things you said was, don't don't put me on a pedestal. But here's three or four things that I did in my life to make that evolution. Is that something you can dive into for the listeners who may be in that spot today. Yeah, interesting. Like as I'm thinking about this at a high level, like it's really for me it was it was quite, you know, war of attrition, not war of annihilation. Like it was it was all the baby steps, it was all the various pieces and tools and relationships and you know, therapy insights and journaled insights, meditative meditative insights that culminated in that progressive sense. But I think for me, the first major turning point was, yeah, somewhere between 15 to 20 years old. Yeah, somewhere in my late teens. I remember a very clear, yeah, just like general turning point where I was like, okay, I I, I can already see my compulsions and addictions wanting to like proliferate and take more hold in my life. At that point, every movie, like every one of my favorite movies was exclusively about drug addiction. Like I just, I resonated with people, with protagonists that just had an immense amount of pain, even though in those years, I was actually quite disconnected from the fact that I had been depressed or that I even tried to kill myself. There was a good amount of sweeping it under the rug in how people close to me related to my suicide attempts. Like it was, you know, when it was brought up, it wouldn't be denied, but it just, it wasn't brought up. It, it, it was just kind of like, okay, well, uh, business as usual, let's like not acknowledge the fact that that was a, a real thing that happened back to business as usual. You know, I think that was the kind of general coping strategy of certain people close to me. And so knowing, you know, with this underlying sense of, okay, I know that there's a lot of pain in me. I know that I can spiral over the next decade and yeah, I think there was still like a shadow aspect part of my mind that was very deep and pervasive of, okay, it didn't happen then, but like, I know I'll do it again by 30. Like, there's no fucking way I'm going to live to 30. You know, I'll, I'll have a couple of years of fun. I'll, you know, go down whichever addictive rabbit hole seems the most, um, you know, user-friendly and that I can like squeeze the most juice out of for a couple of years but then at you know 22 or 26, I'll just like, I'll do it again and I'll be done with it. And so somewhere in those years, I remember having this thought of, okay, like, is this the trajectory? Like, what is my most likely case scenario outcome? Am I going to just wallow and become smaller and, you know, collapse inwards and 
have the arm's distance get wider and wider between me and everyone that I know? Or am I going to transmute this pain into something that might help anyone in the world? And for me at that point, and for for most of my 20s, um, the motivation to transmute the pain into something that helped others was way more motivating than it was for me. You know, there can be some like self-esteem experts or identity focused people who are like, like, oh, like it's not the the healthy ideal, you know, or there's something like inherently codependent about wanting to live for others. But I needed that as a long bridge. Like it mattered way more to me, you know, the pain that my parents would experience if I killed myself or yeah, it just, it's always been more motivating for me of, okay, I can change this into something. And if that helps, you know, a person, a dozen, a dozen people, let alone tens of millions of people, like that feels way more worth it. I'm an afterthought. I'm just like the vessel that this stuff can come through. But yeah, it's maybe because of the near-death experiences that I've had, it's generally been pretty easy for me to not factor myself in much, like not overlook myself like I don't exist. I just, I'm not as interested in myself compared to the impact or like, yeah, what can I turn this thing into? Yeah, not yourself, but what yourself can do for others and less about the self in it, more more the acts of service, the the creativity. Yeah, the healed pain. Like what can that healed pain turn into for the world? Like just the transmutation of that, like even that concept of, you know, I really love thinking about whenever I have a wave of grief move through me or, you know, some more challenging or societally viewed negative emotion, like I love feeling it as I'm not feeling my pain, I'm feeling the pain. Like I'm chipping away at the collective pain that is available to every human. Some people have easier access to it than others, but like that to me has always been way more intrinsically motivating that, yeah, it wasn't what can my pain do for people. It's not my pain. There's just, it's something that I went through and like now that healed pain gets turned into healing transformation, you know, healed shame, more aliveness for other people. Like that's, that's it. You go through things, you forge meaning out of it and you try to do 0.1% better every day forever. And yeah, like it's, I see it as just a total fluke or byproduct of my willingness to dive into this stuff that I've literally had tens of millions of people read my stuff, which is just ridiculous and baffling. I don't consider myself a writer. I'm not a tech person. And yet somehow over 80 million people have read words that I wrote just because I had the core intention of just being of service. If something that I've gone through can be helpful to a handful of people, cool. That's it. Like that's, that's it. That's the only reward needed is anyone was helped over and over. I think some, an interesting one there is you said you don't consider yourself a writer. Based on what I've seen, you're a fairly good writer and you have written a lot of content. So it's hard to not be a writer and write as much and as well as you do. So I know you're not necessarily um, focused on the self and I'm not focusing on flattery on that one, but uh, just a lot of times we don't recognize our, our own inner gold and as part of that shadow work and core wounding, we tend to recognize it in others, but not in ourselves. For the listeners out there, if you, one of the things I like to say to people is we are all those things. Some people say I'm not a runner 
or I'm not a writer. Well, if you put a pen on paper, you're a writer. If you put one foot in front of the other, you're a runner. Whether you're skinny, whether you're heavy, whatever you are, we're all whatever we want to be if we're doing it. And sometimes for the listeners, you may not give yourself credit for it unless you feel like you've reached a certain level or you've done a certain something. But just the act of doing it, you are that thing you're doing. Sorry, I digressed pretty heavily there. The I realized, and Jordan, I never thought about it until you said it right there. I had someone when they were that age, maybe a year or two older, that was very close to me, do the same thing. And we have never talked about it. And, you know, I won't get into the details. That's their story to share someday if they want. But I realized I never talked to them about it. And it's been 25 years. That's uh, interesting to your point about sweeping it under the rug. I don't think anyone in our family ever talked to this person about the challenges they were facing at that time, which is quite interesting. Now, I, I know we all may have had a similar reaction to what you raised, and it actually made me tear up a little when I read it, was when your family came to see you in the hospital, you were actually surprised to see uh, the redness in their eyes and the pain that they were going through. Can you take our listeners through why that surprised you and how that might have contributed to you holding on longer and saying, maybe I will change the path a little? Definitely. Yeah. For quick context, this was like a day or two after the actual suicide attempt. And when you're that young, you not always, but you often get put into like a, a youth just like a suicide watch ward. So I was in a place overnight for, I believe, three nights afterwards, you know, daily talks with the therapist, like they just want to hold you until you're less of a threat to yourself, I guess. And so yeah, my, my parents came and visited me because there were visitor hours. And yeah, I saw the redness in their eyes. I saw how tired they looked. I saw the pain on their faces, you know, logically understandable. They're youngest child that just tried to kill himself and they were upset by it. But there was, you know, a huge driving factor in my suicide attempt was just the, yeah, like the, the depth and breadth, the ongoingness of the bullying by my siblings, who I, you know, lived with both of them my entire childhood. And there had been a, a long story in my mind that I'd interpreted in my childhood of, you know, I was a mistake. My family didn't want me. I, and yeah, my siblings were the ones who were honest enough to communicate how unwanted I was or that I was annoying or that they didn't want me around. And like, I thought they were being honest for the whole family system. So I thought my parents thought the same thing. So in trying to kill myself, I really thought like to a very high degree, I'm doing these people a favor. Like I'm getting out, I'm unburdening them with my existence. And so seeing them hurt um, when my pain had felt so invisible for so long because, you know, when you're intermittently depressed for seven plus years, I went to great lengths to hide the bullying from my parents completely. It was completely off the radar. It was just on the sibling level. My parents are like just golden rock stars with huge hearts. Like I really put a ton of energy into hiding it from them at every step of the process. So yeah, like seeing them so hurt about it, I was like, oh, could this belief be faulty? Maybe they want me around. I wasn't a mistake. My siblings aren't just like being the translator on behalf of my family that I'm unwanted. Maybe I'm mistaken. I love that, Jordan. Thank you for sharing. 
For our listeners, I recommend you read up on this topic on Jordan's website. We'll put it in the show notes, jordangrayconsulting.com. And he has an article that we'll put in the show notes, Four Reasons Not to Kill Yourself. So anyone, suicide, serious topic, anyone who contemplates it, reach out, get help. There's a lot of hotlines you can reach out to and have a read of Jordan's articles on this topic and get help if you're going there. Jordan, let's fast forward a few years. You're in university, film school, and you start dating someone that you had been crushing on in high school. And when you broke up, it hit you hard, but it also acted as a catalyst for what you've been doing for the last 12 years. Can you take us through the realization process that you had at that point and some of the next steps you took? And a couple that really jump out at me. And we'll talk about, we'll piggyback these to talk a bit about excuses, because I've seen you talk a lot about excuses in your videos and in your writing and just being in group with you. For example, the two that stuck out to me were trading work for learning and working for free. Yeah. Multiple pieces to tie in there. I love it. This is, yeah. You've very clearly done your research, sir. This is beautiful. Yeah. So the breakup, uh, yeah, dated someone who was just like, the girl in high school that was just like, oh, that's just like, you know, the, uh, you know, ungettably attractive, way out of my league. Uh, I found out a couple of af- couple years after high school that she had actually had a crush on me and had sent quite clear messages that she was into me. But because that was just like, couldn't be on my radar when I was a scrawny, insecure teenager, I just missed them completely. So yeah, we dated for a year, from 19 to 20-ish. And yeah, at the end of it, um, I was like just a a beaming open heart. I was very loving, available, kind, sweet, you know, veering into nice guy territory, but more just like really just loving on full blast at that time. And I found out years later from her directly that, yeah, there's a threshold. We were a year in and there was a sense for her of like, okay, either I continue to receive love this full blast from this like fire hydrant of a man or my unworthiness starts to bubble up and I have to sabotage this ASAP. And she chose that. So yeah, she broke up with me in quite a spectacular fashion, really just like verbally tore into me for 40 minutes in the front seat of a car. I can still picture the exact moment. And I was just like nonverbal, dumbstruck, like just like it came out of nowhere and she just really tore me a new one. And yeah, during that conversation or you know more moments shortly after i had the birth of a new faulty belief which was you know that served me in a way for years but during that breakup i basically had the thought of i will never let i will never let anyone have this much control over me ever again and so for the next 5 to 7 years 5 to 8 years in you know varying degrees i really just yeah i shut off my heart to a fairly high degree, not entirely. I think that no matter how, you know, shut down or repressed we are, like the the self, the essence is still shining through always. But I really hardened up and I wanted to gain a sense of control in my relationships, which, spoiler alert, isn't healthy and doesn't go well for anyone at any age. Um, so yeah, really started feverishly. I'd already been studying relationships, family dynamics, you know, self-esteem, psychology, texts for about four years at that point but the ferocity of that you know autodidact wanting to like 
voraciously consume hundreds of books just quadrupled during that breakup. And I was like, okay, I'm really, I'm really going to tear into this. And yeah, a year or two later, became a full-time uh, social skills coach, which was just a rebranding of, you know, it was somewhere between social skills coaching and pickup. It wasn't hardcore pickup. And we were actually like teaching, you know, very like left brain tech nerds how to like make good eye contact and have better conversational skills and like learn humor and assertiveness and boundaries. Um, but yeah, that was early 20s was that breakup into, okay, hundreds of books doing this full time, um, but doing this full time being still a more superficial dating version, uh, control oriented, you know, egoic relationships with less depth. That was like 22 to 25. And when you when you wanted to become a social coach, the company that you ended up coaching for, you first said, I want to take your course. And you were a photographer and film and said, why don't I, why don't I trade you my photo skills? Because your photos suck. And you guys give me your course for free. How did you come up with that idea? And how did you already have the confidence to deliver that ask? Well, I think a, a good percentage of it was just kind of youthful arrogance. You know, there've been a couple leap things like, yeah, both in really forcing my way into that business. And yeah, like one of the first sentences of that email was your, your headshots suck. Like I, I, you know, yeah, I basically, I'd done three years of film school. I've been working on film sets and found them. I was just like, this is not the lifestyle that I want. There are a lot of pieces about this that I'm really disillusioned with and not really into. And yeah, in a moment of clarity, I looked around my, at that point, childhood bedroom, realized that I had one book about film, cinematography, lighting, and over 300 books on dating relationship psychology. And I was like, oh, you know what? Maybe I care about this more. And so, yeah, just I Googled like Vancouver dating skills company. This was one of those companies. I went to their website. I really resonated with the curriculum that they had thus far. And I just, I knew inherently that I could add value. I was like, okay, I see which part of the market they're trying to be in. I see areas for improvement. And yeah, my way in was I'm good at taking photos. I can give you and your whole team better headshots. Let me take your six week program. I originally pitched, I wanted to do it for free and, you know, with the express intent of, I'd also want to become one of the coaches here, you know, sooner than later. And by week three of the six week program, I was already teaching week one to other people because I just like the curriculum made sense to me. There wasn't anything super new. It was, it was packaged in a really intelligent way, but yeah, within a couple of months of not being paid. I don't know. There's just, I feel like I trust the feminine. I trust life enough to know that when there is those leap moments, I'm like, this is something. And I'm, you know, I'd been serving tables and doing, yeah, actors' headshots and wedding photos for a couple of years. And I was like, these things are not it. This is, this feels way more true in my body. And so, yeah, it just feels like, okay, this is a time to sprint and name your desire clearly. And even if they pay you zero money for the first, two months, three months, six months, I just, I had the confidence that I can come in here, add enough value. Like I can make, I can create them, you know, three times the amount of new money that I can take a third of a salary. Like I'll create my job in this. And this is the most 
readily available vehicle that I have for it. And yeah, I had some people close to me who were like, oh, you're just letting yourself be taken advantage of and da, da, da. I was like, no, no, no. I'm like creating my own university. I am like coming into a thing and I get to learn, you know, business skills and course structure and management and all these things. And it's like, it's almost like positive reverse university because I'm learning a ton of stuff, you know, on the day, on the job, and I'll eventually get somewhat paid for it. No, no, no. This is like, this is the way. So I, I never had any fear, hesitation around what if they don't pay me, da, da, da. Like that would just be a projection of, you know, lack of self-trust. I trusted myself enough to make it work. And that's that's what I'm hearing. There's so many things that I want to tackle in what you're just talking about there. Because one of the things I tend to see in a lot of young people today, and I may even generalize mostly to the young men that I see in my life, is not taking action, not having a plan, not believing in themselves, possibly not having a growth mindset or an abundance mindset. You hit every single one of those things in that topic, right? You believed that in an abundant mindset that if you put yourself forward and you were successful, there's enough room for everyone. We'll grow the pie. You guys will want me as a coach. You sacrificed and said, I'll work for no money. You had a plan. You had belief in yourself and stuck to the plan. I mean, I don't want to make it a leading question. Am I wrong in saying that I see that in a lot of young people today and maybe an unwillingness to do all of those things that you did to be successful in that step of your career. Yeah, I, mean, I definitely see it in a lot of people. It'd be hard for me to say that there's anything, that there's any tie disproportionately to a generation or an age group. I think just the vast majority of people, you know, were really societally conditioned to go on the, you know, safe, straight and narrow, really you know, watch out, like anything can kill you. So there's, yeah, like I have some compassion for a lot of the laziness and entitlement that I see, which there is a fuck ton of. I'm not like, oh no, everyone has a ton of work ethic. Of course not. I think most people are just looking for a very safe salary. They want someone to, you know, tell them how to do their life. They want to be handheld. Yeah, there are not many emotional adults in the world who are really taking responsibility for themselves across the board. I just see that as a, a person thing. Does that hopefully get, you know, does the volume of that narrow as more people, you know, age-wise grow up and have more life experience? Hopefully, but also not a guarantee. For me, I really, because of the suicide attempt and then another near-death experience in my mid-20s, I just, there is such a sense for me of all of this is a bonus round. Like, seriously, I should have died at 15. Like, and so... I'm playing with house money. Like, how fucking dare I not make courageous leaps and go for things that I care about? Like, how seriously do I have to take myself that, oh, I start a blog and, you know, I write 50 posts and it gains no traction and pe all the people from my hometown laugh at me and they think I'm trying to be famous or, you know, pump up my ego and look a certain way. And, like, who gives a flying fuck? Think whatever you want about me. There, when you have a lot of people consume your stuff, there'll be someone somewhere who thinks every possible thing about you. Like there's just, you can't control it. And so, yeah, I think from a combination of almost dying and then knowing that I will die one day, like why would I hold back on any of it? It was in there, you said you had compassion 
for the people you see not moving forward in their life. And it's a, a great way to look at it. You talked about the system, whether that's, you know, our, our childhood, how we're raised, how we're told what to do, what not to do in a school system that has you march from K to 12, go to college, get a partner, get a job, retire at 65. Effectively, most people are conditioned to live that life. So it's, it's probably a select few who see a way out of it. I see a split between who see a way out of it and who desire a way out of it. Because some people, you know, if that model works for them 100% and they find a career path, like there are some people that do work in finance or engineers or architects or doctors, you know, that need formal training and go on a certain path and they want predictability, they want consistency, they're stoked on making, you know, 50 to 80k a year for decades and they have some you know they're they're a tenured professor whatever the the path is you know if it works for you phenomenal i'm not dogging on people who like have formal education or have like normal people jobs that you know are not as you know easily labeled as self-employed yeah i'm by i'm under no uh, false pretenses that like we're all artists and we're all we're all entrepreneurs. Like no, of course not. And to make it clear, listeners, I'm not dogging on that either because that actually is exactly what I've done with my life to date. So it can work. Maybe at some point you decide to change what you're doing. That's fine. The okay uh, digression aside, let's we're back on the journey. So you said that in that relationship you were bordering on being a nice guy. And I put nice guy in quotation marks and we'll dive into why. But as you were doing this work, some of the women coaches and possibly men coaches as well that you were working with told you, you don't have an edge to you. You don't have a beast. You're a nice guy. Can you take our listeners through what we mean by what a nice guy is and what some of the challenges and negatives are and then we'll talk about how you killed your nice guy. Sure. Took him behind the barn and shot him. Yeah. For me, I guess the, the real focal point, epicenter of nice guy is someone who is more attached to how he is perceived by others than someone who is willing to be aware of, verbalize, stand up for his own needs. Uh, so nice guys are generally either in passive or passive-aggressive communication as opposed to assertive, which is more kind of healthy middle of the road where you're actually advocating for yourself and you allow yourself to have needs. So yeah, I, I had a lot of nice guy tendencies in that relationship and a lot of relationships in my early, mid-20s. I mean, they're, they're still present today. They're still something that I keep my eye on. It's, it's not like a you know zero to 100 to zero type thing. But yeah, because, you know, in my mind, at especially that 20-year-old relationship, 1920, like she was so, you know, the it girl in high school that I just, I swallowed so many of my needs and just, I, I just didn't want to rock the boat and just like, you know, bow her feet and be like the most perfect boyfriend possible. Um, yeah, it's, there's various pieces to that, but it's really how in right relationship with your needs are you and are you willing to you know, take up space and exist in your relationship and not just be a, a doormat or need meter for your partner? That was huge. Needs, 
boundaries. It's something that the nice guys significantly lacking. And so you went on a bit of an adventure for a number of years to say, okay, I'll develop my edge. How did you develop your edge? What was that journey? Yeah. So as you alluded to before, it was a, a female coach of mine who's super powerful. Yeah. When I was, tw- uh, yeah, I'd say 20, probably 23-ish, she did, you know, without mincing words, did say like, so the thing that I've been struggling with for a couple of years post that breakup and in the women I'd been dating after was there were a handful of women who I would be interested in romantically, sexually, and like, as I started to broach those conversations, I was getting this consistent feedback of them being like, oh, like, I didn't, I, I, I kind of thought you were gay. And like, nothing wrong with being gay at all, of course. But I was like, huh, interesting. So if me, this heterosexual, desiring these women person, I'm getting this consistent pattern, this consistent feedback. Like, it wasn't a woman. It was like at least half a dozen that I had serious interest in. I was like, okay, there's something in this that I'm not seeing. And yeah, that mentor was like, they're seeing you as a nice guy. They're seeing you as a sexual non-entity because your edge isn't there. You haven't integrated your, you know, darker masculine energy. And that made sense to me. I tied a part of that to, I had some early childhood experiences with adult male anger that was so terrifying to me that some, you know, coming back to the shadow, some part of me relegated anger and rage to my shadow. I was like, okay, that is fucking terrifying. I can't be like that. So put my anger on the, you know, on the back burner and anger is a necessary precursor to boundaries. So if you say no anger for me, you're going to not set boundaries. You're going to not advocate for yourself in a lot of your relationships until you realize you're doing it. So that was a big tangent, but yes, I, in wanting to integrate my darkness, my, you know, killing of my nice guy or the systematic killing of my nice guy, I thought, okay, I'm looking to integrate boundaries and anger and darkness, but also in this sexual realm. So who has, you know, what, what men can I have access to that have seemed to integrate this specific piece? And that brought me into BDSM, you know, kink dungeons, play parties. I wanted to be around ideally like as many 40 plus year old men who were just deeply comfortable with the full spectrum of their sexuality. And so that's where I went. I I sought out new mentors. That was really my, yeah, multi-year, mid-20s. One of the major growth edges was just wanting to spend as much time with men like that as possible. And yeah, I found a few, got a lot from them and uh, somewhat swung the pendulum, became my own kind of you know, darker dom energy self for a few years, which really integrated this piece. And then as I started to feel my heart, you know, taking too much of a backseat, then I was like, okay, this was enough. I absolutely have edge. If anything, I'm starting to have too much edge. So now coming back to the middle path of, okay, you know, spine and heart and balls, like how can I just be all these things at once, you know, heart all the way through, but also boundaries all the way through. And one of the things that really blew me away in the Supercharge Your Sex Life video series was your conversation with Devin. And you two talked about how men could be more attractive to women. But part of that was how do you 
develop that, let's call it inner status, improved health. Is that something we can dive in a little little to give the listeners a flavor of what they'll be able to pull away through your series? Sure. Yeah, that bonus video is a unique one and is a bit of a bit of a tangent. But I think the biggest thing I would say to that, because like that content was really the epicenter of like the dating coach years, like so like eleven ish years ago. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest thing that I would say around that, which is a bit of a translation into what I think is really the heart of that program and really how I see, you know, how I'm desiring men to show up in relationships in general is you can only really truly, you know, penetrate and ravish and blow your sexual partner's mind to the depth that you've penetrated yourself. And anything that you're doing that is just trying to like be performative or showy or, you know, make them come 10 times in a night and be their best lover ever and fuck like a rock star in ecstasy. It's all a band-aid. It's going to be a band-aid until you are really, you know, what depths of grief and sadness have you not plumbed in yourself? Like what, what edge have you not integrated? Is your heart as available as you want your partner to be radiant and open if you aren't doing these same things to yourself and you're just trying to, you know, codependently inhabit inhabit it through another person, it's going to fall flat. And, and one thing that came up for me when watching that video and you talked about, because I, I believe Devin worked with you early on when you, you were in the... Yeah, he was, he was one of the original founders of that business that I forced my way into. He was one of the people who had a headshot that I was like, hey, you need a new headshot. Yeah, and you were saying, you know, border bordering towards pickup, but what really blew me away, and and I don't know if anyone said it to you, was when he talked about some of the things that you need to do to have presence in your life, meditation, slowing everything down, being calmer. Those are not just things that make you attractive to a woman. Those make you a leader with men. They make you a leader in the workplace. Every person I see in work that's leading, that's out front, they all embody the behaviors you two talked about throughout that video. So it may make you attractive to the opposite sex, but it's also going to move you forward in your life personally and professionally. So I, I really recommend people dive into that material and we'll we'll put your course in the show notes for people to look at. I wanna I wanna make one comment on that. It'll be it'll be short. So yeah, on that piece, one of the reasons that people that are rich are so attractive is people think like, oh, you know, because of their access to resources, like they can just like buy me a Lambo and we can go on vacations wherever. Like like on the deeper, truer level, one of the reasons that that rich people, you know, men or women, are generally seems more attractive than someone who is, you know, five hundred bucks away from not being able to pay their rent, is because they have free attention. Like this major pillar of their life that caused a lot of people stress and anxiety, it's handled. So they have more bandwidth to really be with you. And so it's not oh twenty cars. It's they can be more present with you. Like they have the free attention to really be there in the conversations. Or if you're having sex, they're very there. They're not like, 
oh, I have this like unresolved stress and tension. And I have to like, I'm not like my, my life isn't functional yet. They can really be there in a way that other people can't. And there's a word that's jumping in my head as you say that and it's presence. And it's not because of the money. It's simply a presence. And you look at that presence and say, oh, I want to spend time with that person. I want to listen to them. I want them to coach me because they embody something that I don't necessarily see day in, day out. There's something special there. Okay. Totally aligned on that. And Jordan, you talked earlier about always craving that next addiction, whatever it would be. And so at this stage of your life, you're diving into the BDSM scene, you're diving into other areas to improve your sexuality. And you realize, I think I may have developed a bit of a sex addiction. Is that accurate? Definitely. Yeah. There was a a real hedonic escalator factor in it that, you know, from this was like the proliferation of the ego. This was the, yeah, the the heady fear-based control piece of me just claiming more ground and, you know, gathering up more of my my brain matter in this direction. What started as, you know, the 21, 22, okay, voraciously reading, becoming a dating coach. When, you know, when I was doing the dating coaching thing and about, you know, a quarter, a third of my job was really teaching like cold approach, pickup, daytime, on the street. So like we'd walk around downtown Vancouver and like we'd walk around like this same kind of six or seven block radius, especially during the summer when way more people are out and just going up to strangers and getting their phone number and asking them on dates. And once that became, you know, too systemized and too easy, whether it was in a you know nightclub or daytime pickup, it just it became progressively not a challenge. And so I was always looking for like, okay, what's what's the next challenge? What's the next layer of control that I can get? And so, yeah, then going into BDSM and kink. Um, yeah, at that point, when there was just, there was such a, a felt embodied sense of getting, getting new sexual partners is just too easy. Um, you know, I was in like open poly relationships during those years. You know, all the partners that I was sleeping with knew that I was seeing other people. They were free to see other people as well. But then I also started getting into seeing sex workers more because that felt like an even bigger layer of control of, okay, I'm, you know, having voluntary consensual sex with my polyamorous partners who, you know, were generally women that I date for like three to 12 months and they'd just be like overlapping with each other. So I was seeing a couple of people at a time. But yeah, for some reason, it felt like another layer of control or another layer of emotional safety of, okay, if I'm now paying someone to be sexual with me, then I'm that much more guaranteed that she won't say something mean and cutting and emotionally eviscerating like the woman did when she broke up with me when I was 20. Like just, just proliferating my pain. And, you know, in those years, while there was undoubtedly, you know, I'm sure there was some some or ample damage done to maybe some of those women who were dating me, you know, said they were totally fine with the setup, but were like maybe over-functioning and, you know, being the nice girl to my former nice guy. Yeah, it was just, there was an escalation and it just became a numbers game for a while. And it was just really soulless and empty and unsatisfying. And yeah, then I started going to SAA meetings, Sex Addicts Anonymous Got into doing 12 steps, got a sponsor, read the big book, went into that for a while and was just like, yeah, I remember one of the quotes that really stuck with me was, 
you can't get enough of that which doesn't satisfy you. Like this sense of like, you can't gorge on, you know, nutrient vacant bullshit food. You can't sleep with 300 women and be like, okay, like 305. Like that's going to be the one where I feel like, oh, now I, I feel safe and I can relax into this. No, it's just, it's, it's empty. It's a, you know, escalator to nothing. More and more meaningless sex is not going to address the need that you're trying to satisfy through it. Yeah, it's it's not only a law of diminishing returns, it's a law of negative returns. That's another thing in the 12-step life is, I think this is more in AA, but yeah, there's this concept of like, first drinking was fun, then it was fun with problems, then it was just problems. That's right. And it was it was completely true. Like I had that exact three part thing with um yeah, the various sexual partners and sex workers. Like there was absolutely an exhilarating ego high, whoa, this is like crazy and you know, I'm like people that I see in movies and it's wild and then it started to, you know, be really like empty and frustrating and still like some spikes of dopamine and then it was just, Oh, I'm using this to isolate and be in pain and I'm drowning. And so you, we've gone through all of this that we've discussed, and you're still only 24. And At this point, I'd be, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And wow. and and this yeah. is and this is when you make a big pivot. And, and I love the audacity of this one. You actually decided you're leaving the country. You get rid of all your possessions, and you decide you're going to go to Thailand. Some questions around that. What prompted the decision? How long did you expect you were going to be gone for? And did you set any goals for yourself before you left? Yes. So what prompted the decision is I met a guy who quick, we became fast friends. Like it's one of those people who I met him and in the first three minutes of us talking, it was just like, oh, there's a lot of energy here. We can very clearly just become like new best friends. And yeah, in spending less than, I think we'd spent, like we'd seen each other on three separate days. And on the third day, we literally shook hands. And we're like, let's go travel the world. There's like, there's so much energy here. I barely know you. I just met you. And we have such an easeful, amazing time together. I'm pivoting in my life in a big way. I just, I left this company. I broke up with a long-term girlfriend at that point. I was distancing myself from friends who were getting into a, a lot of drugs and alcohol and that was never my thing and I wasn't necessarily judging them for their addiction because I had my own but I was just like really in a big overhaul of oh and I also yeah like purged my life of my physical possessions like I got rid of or donated like 95% of all the things that I owned um, at this point my parents were quite worried about me because they were like oh is he gearing up to do that thing he did a decade ago I was not, I was just like, I'm just offloading a ton of noise and dead weight that doesn't feel true anymore. So yeah, we flew off to Southeast Asia. The plan, like what I what I told my friends and family, what I, what I kind of braced people for was, I thought I might be going for at least 11 months. We left early February and I was like, I might be home for Christmas, I'm not sure. But the goal, the very explicit goal that I told everyone, because again, social accountability works well for me and I am, you know, at that point, especially was shame driven enough that there's no way I was going to tell people I'm not coming back to Canada until I'm self-supporting from my new business venture, unless I was, I just, I wouldn't 
again, that, that stubborn throwing my hat over the wall part of my mind. I was like, I know I will make this work. It could be really painful. We'll see. But yeah, it was the same as forcing my way into that company when I was 22. I was just like, this is the way now. I'm going to Southeast Asia. Uh, I'm going there first and foremost because it's way cheaper to live there even as a tourist than it is to live in Vancouver. That was really the main point of logic was... That's such a great point. I, you know, wasn't... I don't remember at that point if I was still at my parents' place. I could have been, but I was... I don't know if I was. I may or may not have been, but, you know, whatever my rent was, it was, you know, close to $1,000 a month Canadian. And then if I was going to be doing, you know, phone and Wi-Fi and food and all this stuff, I was like, okay, I can live for half, if not a third of monthly expenses by just going to Thailand for as long as the visitor visa allows you to, and then going to Bali. And, you know, Bali was not as much of a tourist hotspot back then, eight and a half years ago, as it is today. It's really come way up in people, especially digital entrepreneurs, knowing about it and moving there. But yeah, that was the goal, was replace my income as quickly as possible. So I'm traveling and living off of like I'm I'm in the black what my income is I'm not dipping into my savings at all and with that pillow with that cushion hopefully getting to you know 2k 3k a month in recurring revenue through products or maybe coaching revenue through my business I'll be able to move back to Vancouver and still be in the black living there so that was the goal and I did that in the first two months and so what were some of the biggest highlights for you, both personally and professionally, on that trip? And I think you ended up staying for two years? No, I stayed for four and a half months. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so yeah, the plan was, I, I even in saying to my parents and friends, like, I'm going to be gone until at least December, I think that was just a a piece of my individuation at that point of just like, okay expect that you won't see me for at least a year because I just want to feel very energetically untied to my hometown, to Canada. I'm just, I'm very gone. Don't expect me back anytime soon. It was just like, I'm really severing ties and going to go do a thing. Like it's time for me to really build my life in a way that I haven't before. Because even though I was kind of an entrepreneur at the business that I you know pushed my way into at 22, it still wasn't my thing. And so, yeah, at 25, it was really like, I'm putting down my roots for the first time ever. And I want to give this a really, you know, fair start. So yeah, I I wrote, published and marketed three books in my first 60 days of being there. Uh, which again, like just blasting out that word count at that point was the easiest thing in the world for me because I'd been voraciously consuming books for you know, a decade-ish at that point. And so I had a lot of stuff swimming around in my mind and I'd never written anything. So those just pour out, poured out of me. I put them on Amazon. Those got over uh, $1,200, $1,500, $1,800 a month in recurring revenue quite quickly. Again, without a platform. This isn't, people go like, oh yeah, but like you were a writer and you like have this like world famous blog. Like if I had 30 people on my website in a day, it like made me cry tears of joy. I had no traffic. I had no assets. Like I had, I don't know, maybe $3,000 in my bank account when I left Canada. The company, I learned a ton, just a ton. Like, but my revenue was largely what I learned. They paid me a fuck all. It was like the whole, the years that I was there, it was not, not a livable wage for being in Vancouver. But even right there, 
what you said again is an outlet for excuses. Oh, well, you did that because you had this world famous blog because you're a writer. Yet at the start of the conversation, you said, I don't see myself as a writer. So you didn't identify as a writer. You didn't have a world famous blog. And in 60 days, you published three books that went on to be Amazon bestsellers. Yeah. And dozens of articles. And I was posting organic content on my Facebook and Twitter and every platform that I had every day. Even if I was just like spamming friends and family and loose acquaintances, like I just, I used every single resource that I had available to me and I just like hit it hard. I was like, I will just provide like a ridiculous amount of value in every facet, every corner of the internet that I have access to. And I'll just do that on repeat. And, mm-hmm. you know, even the feedback and the comments and the messages that I'll be getting, that is as much revenue as someone buying a $3 book of mine. Like it's, it's all gold. Because it's teaching you to be better at what you're already doing. Every comment someone gives you is a lesson for the next article or the next course that you offer. What's landing? What's resonating? What do they want more of? Exactly. Like I'm, it's, it's my job to be a, a conduit, a channel, to be of service. Like if you're standing on a stage in front of 100 people and doing live Q&A, like you're listening to what questions are coming at you. And even as you're speaking, you're watching people's faces. What's landing? What isn't as clear? How can I make this you know, more applicable or actionable? Like it's every single moment is layers of a dialogue. It's not just like, hello, people, here's me with a megaphone and like, enjoy my content, the end. <laughs> like, I am always listening. Always listening, refining. It sounds like a sponge for learning from your audience and mm-hmm. probably people who aren't in your audience because they may give feedback that also helps add someone to the audience later. Absolutely. Yeah. Every every book, every course, every video program I've ever made has exclusively come as a result of hearing many people ask the same set of questions over and over. And especially questions that I particularly didn't like answering. Like things I was, okay, I'm really tired of like hearing the same question. Here's a book. Here's so a like, video. <laughs> yeah. Here's a video course. Here's an accessibly priced thing with, yeah, like it's when it's repetitive enough that it starts to anger me. I'm like, okay, I have to make a thing. I don't want to talk about this anymore. There's a course that's way cheaper than one-to-one time with me. Go do this. I almost imagine you in your mind saying, fuck, if I get that question again, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to record a video on it. Wait a second. $9.99, you can get an answer to the question everyone asks me. That is phenomenal. Well done. Uh, So now, fast forward, we're 2016. And when you left Canada, you somewhat cut a lot of relationships, cut a lot of possessions. You start to realize that you're a bit, you're back in Vancouver, and you're realizing you're a bit disconnected from the world. And so you go to an open house for a, a men's group fuck, what is a men's group? And it turns out... Something that I judged immensely. That's what it was. Of course, exactly. We'll get into that. And it's the Samurai Brotherhood. So, can you tell our listeners what is a men's group? What were some of your early judgments? And what happened for you when you let go of those judgments and you really embraced it and dove into the work? (sighs) Yeah. 2016, another big inflection point. Yeah. I was coming off the heels of my ninth breakup with the same woman, just a very 
painful cycle with also a lot of beauty and love and healing of a relationship. And yeah, I really just had a big revelatory moment where I realized, you know, with a, with a great deal of irony that the first two or three years of me building a relationship coaching brand, I'd really just, I'd never sacrificed and kind of minimized the role of relationship in my life more. I was single for a good chunk of the early years of this business. And yeah, there was kind of a no man's land in between of letting go of my old social circle and former close friends and calling in kind of the new, more deeply aligned people that I wanted to meet and be close to. And yeah, so I, this is when this, the feature on Facebook of, I'm guessing it still exists. I'm not sure if they still use this as much anymore, but the brand new feature of, oh, like this person, like this Facebook friend of yours and this Facebook friend of yours and nine other Facebook friends of yours are going to this event nearby. And yeah, it said Samurai Brotherhood Open House. And I was like, what is this? And I clicked on the link and there's a Facebook event page and it said, yeah, there's going to be 50 or so men and it's an open house for a men's group community in Vancouver. And, you know, my my heart, my higher self, spirit pushed me enough, you know, past my ego's resistance of who are these fucking losers? There's no way any of them make as much money as I do. Like, I'm probably smarter than them. I'm, I'm deeper in the work than they are. What am I going to learn? Hanging out with a bunch of losers. Whatever. I'll try it out. We'll see. And I went to it and I... I Continued to systematically judge 98% of the guys there. But there were two, maybe two and a half guys who I saw my story in. Everyone went around and shared for, I don't know, one to three minutes. It was a multi-hour event. And yeah, there were a couple guys who I really heard. I mean, similar to what happens in 12-step meetings. And any of the things like a lot of the value is just, oh, I hear my story through other people's words. So therefore, I'm not alone. It's not just me. It also happens to other people. And yeah, there are a couple of guys who shared of being at a similar place in their life where they'd also built six-figure business that they had largely systemized themselves out of. They had a lot of free time, too much free time. And they're just kind of twiddling their thumbs and feeling kind of lonely and bored. And that was very my story at that point. I was doing over 120K a year just off of my courses and like I didn't need to work as hard as I did in my first couple of years. And, you know, I was like envious of my year one self who just got to like wake up with burning passion and, you know, knew what he had to do. And now I was like, oh, I've got room. I've got spaciousness. But yeah, I, I heard those guys' stories and I was like, I'll give it a shot. It was a four week trial of, okay, just come and join this men's group, show up for a month of meetings. If you don't like it, go away. All good. If you like it, keep on. And yeah, thank goodness I went to it. And after a few months of being in it, eventually kind of busted myself and owned my story of, listen, I've been kind of quiet and just like judging you guys for a couple of months because my story is that I'm better in X, Y, and Z ways. And da, 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 da. And my deeper truth is actually that one of my friends just died a couple of weeks ago and I've been going through this breakup cycle with this person and I actually feel really hollow and alone. You know, I feel like judgment, 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 superficial bullshit and deeper truth, I'm in a lot of pain. But yeah, I was in that men's group for several years and I really credit it with both helping me heal a lot of my wounding with my brother, wounding with men in general and just learning how to be in connection. 
Like it was just a long form container to learn how to just be in connection, be in relationship with the same people, you know, week, week in, week out for years on end. And there was a lot of healthy and necessary ego dissolution in just being a guy in a room full of guys talking about the truth of their lives. And for those who aren't listening, for those who are listening that don't know what a men's group is, because some people may say, well, why don't you have a co-ed group? Why a men's group that just sounds like a bunch of guys getting together and being misogynist and toxically masculine? What is a men's group? What work do we do in one? And why is it important for men? So many angles to go into with those. What is a men's group? It is usually a weekly ongoing container of somewhere between 8 to 15 of the same men who meet week after week and just, yeah, talk about the truth of their lives. I think that there is absolutely value in co-ed groups and there's also value in same-gendered groups for men and women. There are men's groups, there are women's groups. Uh, I think that generally when people are in same-gendered groups, they can go into, there's just more free-flowing ease, transparency, totality. They can feel that much more free to speak about the deepest, most raw, most vulnerable truth of their lives and not have the added layer of, you know, could someone that I'm maybe attracted to or I want to like see me in a certain way, like if anything gives your ego, you know, even that 5% wiggle room to like, okay, well, I won't say the full truth of this because... Uh, like this dynamic is in the room and it's different. Again, I've been in multi-year men's groups. I've also been in multi-year co-gendered groups. There's value in both. Of course. And different things come from each one. And one of the things I'll, I'll add to supplement that is often men tend to suffer in silence. And so we we don't talk to our friends. We don't talk to our family. We don't really talk to anyone about the darkness that we feel that's inside us that pervades our world. And often men's work, men's circle, it's a safe container to just talk about how you're feeling. So you're not suffering in silence. And in a lot of ways, it's also just a great way to hold each other accountable. You talked about how social accountability is a tool that you love to use for yourself. Men's circle is that spot where you can look at each other and say, what are you going to be accountable for? What are you going to do? You know, you've been telling us for months that you're going to do X, Y, Z. You haven't taken the first fucking step. What are you going to do this week? Before we meet again in a week, what are you going to do to commit to what you told us you want to do? Right. And those are deep conversations that a lot of us don't have with our closest friends in life. Yeah, completely. I think it's also there can be a, in some way, there can be a lower barrier to entry for men getting into a men's group, just, you know, a group of their similar-ish aged peers versus like there can still be, you know, I live in a bubble, so this isn't as prevalent in my direct life, but there is still, I think, more of a stigma or, you know, hesitation, resistance for a man, you know, just pick a man from a random population sample off the street to go to a therapist. Oh, a therapist? Oh, man. Oh, I must be really fucked up. And like, I definitely can't tell my guy friends that I'm doing that. But a men's group can at least sound like, I think it's, you know, it's one step more 
accessible of, oh, a men's group. Like, do you guys just like, do you drink beer and play video games? Do you just like hang out and chat? Like, I'm more curious about that than going to see a shrink or someone who's like going to fix my fucked up mind. Like it's, yeah. And, and like some men can also overly rely on, um, you know, if they don't have close confidants, you know, in, in modern developed nations, it's quite common for the, the median number of self-reported close confidants for adult men to be zero. Like the most frequent number is I don't have a close friend who, if I found out that I had cancer, I would call and tell them or ask for support. Like most people, they're just like, I just don't have that. And so some men do aim to choose my words carefully here, but like they can overly rely on their partner. If they are in relationship and they don't have close friends, they don't have a men's group, they can, you know, if their only felt sense of an outlet for these secret thoughts and difficult emotions is their partner, then, you know, A, amazing. They feel safe enough to bring it to their partner at all. They're talking to someone, great. And I picture humans as tabletops. And if a tabletop has one table leg, it's not very stable. If it has eight and, you know, two of those table legs are close friends and two of them get knocked out and you're still stable, that's amazing. Like having a diversification of support is massively valuable. And I think that men more often than not, are a bit more prone to the lone wolf isolation, grin and bear it thing compared to, you know, like just the depth or number of close friends that women might have uh, compared to the average adult male. And it's less stigmatized. There's, there's generally less resistance for women to have female friends that they can hop on a phone call with and talk for a free-flowing hour about whatever. It's a relatively more rare man that, you know, that has access to that or has the willingness to even attempt something close to that. So a men's group really hits a lot of these pieces for people. And it did for me as well. And in, in the one thing it does, Jordan, at the start of that, you were talking about mental health and you were talking about how the average guy may not want to see a counselor or they may not want to acknowledge that the way I feel right now could to some be classified or labeled as depression or anxiety. Yet what's interesting is they're in circle and they're sharing. And quite often, someone will throw out a question to say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. And you may say, can people put up their hand, anyone in this room who's suffered from mental depression? And you may have 70 to 80% put up their hand. Can you put up your hand if you've been to a counselor? 70% of the people or more put up their hand. And that man who was suffering in silence and, and came to circle, he looks around and he realizes, I'm not alone. Other men go through what I've gone through and I can, I can feel more comfortable now that seeing a counselor and addressing my needs is viable. It's not something that the guys in this circle are going to look down on me for. Yeah, I really love the the concept of the opposite of shame is innocence. And I think that is a huge thing that comes out in any form of group work is you see just how significantly unspecial your stuff is and the ego really thrives in specialness. You know, like it's a it's a more controversial hot take, but true that a lot of anxiety and depression is just you know, an overabundance, an overgrowth of ego, of rumination, of spiraling into 
me and my stuff and focusing on my pain. And when someone tries to like burst my bubble of self-loathing, I push them away so I can just like hold on to me being in my stuff. Again, non-judgment. This is me speaking from experience. This is me speaking you know, both personally and professionally with, with clients I've worked with. Yeah, there's the ego really just wants to be left alone, to wallow, to just like collapse in and self-protect. Like I've been in a men's group circle where you know, even darker shadow content where there was that moment of like, okay, you know, everyone raise your hand. If you've ever had suicidal thoughts, same thing. Every hand or close to it out of 16 men, like at some point in their life, yeah, yeah, I've totally thought about it. And so the one person who's like, I've really been struggling in the last three months with a lot of isolation and barely seeing people. And, you know, I've even had the thoughts like this and they say it with such trepidation. It's like, Listen, the more personal, the more universal. If you have this thought and then your ego attacks that thought and is like, oh, like no one else is having an experience like this. This is just me. Like that is a surefire sign that you're tapping into the collective. You're tapping into something that millions, if not billions of people have been like, no, totally. I've been there. Of course. Yeah. we. It's so easy to think that we're unique and we're different when so many people on this earth have gone through every single thing that we're going through. That's a beautiful way to look at it. So in your years in the work with men, what are some of the most common challenges you see men facing? In any specific realm or just across the board? Just across the board. Two or three things that really jump out at you that you see day in, day out, consistent or week in, week out consistently. I mean, there's there's a lot of self-selection bias in it because you know I tend to attract the kind of clients that are just you know either very similar to me or similar to a former version of myself or just a 20% more neurotic version of me today. Like, so, you know, the things that I've written from my personal experience, those articles, those books call in people. So this isn't to say that this is like the, an objective sample of the entire world, but the sample of my readership. I mean, the most common things that I tend to get is a lot of sexual anxiety. So premature ejaculation, performance anxiety, uh, erectile dysfunction, and and largely from younger men. So younger to me, you know, under 40, not just teenagers, but yes, erectile dysfunction and certain things can be increasingly common over 50, over 60 on the physiological level. But yeah, just generally a lot of overthinking that manifests itself in some sexual hangups of, you know, it was hard for me to get an erection one time six years ago and that girlfriend was really mean about it and ever since i'm afraid that that's going to happen again and so i have these things that have piled on top of it and i just now i'm drowning in it and don't know what to do with it so sex stuff is one very common one another one i would say is yeah like path purpose meaning stuff so maybe i'm several years into medical school i'm doing it because my parents wanted me to I'm getting increasingly depressed and I'm quite unhappy with my path and I know exactly what I want to do, but I just don't see a path of how I can, you know, switch lanes, do this thing. And am I even allowed to optimize for joy and meaning or should I just, you know, sit down, shut up and do the work that will give me status and the love and approval of my parents. And the third one, I'd say, yeah, there's a, there's a good amount of like, either 
like some iteration of should I stay or should I go? I've been dating this person for a while. I'm on a new precipice of commitment. You know, I'm thinking about proposing or I'm thinking about whatever this next asking her to move in with me. I'm having some anxiety come up around it. Is this guidance anxiety? Is this, oh, there's, there are several red flags that I'm overlooking. I'm kind of nice guying it my way through. This thing is actually get with men and women. This one isn't as gendered as, as the last two. But yeah, it's like, does this sound like a safe, healthy relationship that I am good to double down on? Or do you hear anything that's like, oh, wow, watch out for that. Maybe this isn't you know, a fundamentally values-aligned partner for you. All right. You've chosen our next three topics. I love it. So uh, let's dive into sex. One of the things that jumped out at me in the video series, and I'll throw it at you and you'll probably have a fair amount to say on this. It seemed like the content in the main series was geared towards men with a lot of the topics that you just raised, whether it's erectile dysfunction, stronger penis, go down the list. And it started to paint a picture for me of how men tend to think about sex and what makes a good lover. And then you had bonus content where you had interviews with a half dozen women. And my takeaway was <laughs> everything that the guy thinks he needs to be doing. And I'm going to use a key word because it came up for every woman to perform, to hit his stats, to hit his numbers. When you ask them what good sex was or what made a good lover, it was totally different than what I think most men think about. Can we... Can we unpack if I'm off base on that or, or, or dive into it together? That's 100% on. Yeah, the that's really like the one sentence crux of the point of the course. You know, in, in marketing and education space, there's often this concept of, you know, sell them what they want, give them what they need. And this course is just, it, it's very that. You know, selling what they want is, you know, you hook people in with, Yes, you will. This part isn't a lie. You will absolutely be able to last longer if you want to. You will get erections on command. You will be a more present, comfortable, confident lover. And, you know, in the languaging of, I don't lead with this, but like, I speak enough to the performative part of the average man's mind is exactly that. It's like, like, oh, like I haven't been performing well for my wife lately and I, I want to like make sure that I can just show up and like fuck for hours. I'm like, you know, have you asked your wife like, hey, are you looking for three hours of vaginal penetration? Because I bet she would say no. <laughs> so like it really is they come in with performance is the thing. I have to have sex for at least this amount of time. And yeah, really like the crux of the course is it's about connection. Like and that's, yeah, the, the interview series with the bonus module in the program of interviewing a bunch of, you know, eloquent, emotionally intelligent, amazing women um, and just saying like, yeah, are you looking for men to perform and perform for you in bed? Are you looking like, is the, the metric that you're tracking most closely that you have, you know, six vaginal orgasms every time you have penetrative sex and every single one without any prompting or leading questions were like, I'm just looking to feel connected to you. Like, I'm just looking for, you know, no one said this sentence verbatim, but they do want lovemaking. They do want connection. It's like, are you in the room with me? Or do I feel like you're fucking the clock more than you are, you know, actually having sex with me? 
not only did it seem like most of them said what they do want it, it also seemed like most of them said what they don't want. And everything I heard, I was writing down the notes for what they do want. And I just kept hearing presence, connection, mindful. He's here with me. He's sensing what's happening in my body. He's, He's vulnerable. He's intimate. What don't I want? I don't want sex by the numbers. I don't want a predictive path. I don't want a performance mindset. It felt like almost every one of them talked about not having a performance-based mindset. So, it's, it was absolutely incredible to hear what they all wanted and how you might approach that totally different than what the average guy thinks about. Yeah. I really, in hearing that, I really just it conjures up the image of different forms of dancing. Like there are, I'm sure there's a, a proper term for this, but like there's, there's group hip hop dancers that all, you know, move flawlessly in sync. Like they're all doing, I'm sure they wouldn't call it this, but like they're all doing some version of the robot and they're all just like very sharp and it's like every single, it's choreographed, it's exactly on beat. And yes, like to the masculine, there is a lot of beauty in that like flawless structure. Like, wow, these guys are really sharp and it's cool and it's performative and it's a, it's a thing. And yeah, like most, I mean, most women and all the women that I interviewed for that series, they're not looking for, are you hitting the mark? Are you hitting your choreography flawlessly and on beat? It's, you know, like a more wild, intuitive, flowing dance. It's like, we're dancing together. It's not me witnessing your choreography. We are dancing together. And so as I'm dancing and shifting, as my dance moves are, you know, doing a different thing, are you responding and calibrating? Are you dancing with me through it? It's a moment to moment, you know, letting go, surrendering, witnessing, reflecting, mirroring. Like it's, it's all, yeah, it's really a one-to-one -one comparison. Like what form of dancing are you doing? It's not about doing the Macarena flawlessly. It's about being with your dance partner and like letting them feel felt and seen and like you're with them. What really flew into me on that one as you were saying that was get out of your fucking head yeah. and be here with me. And we're going to have amazing sex together. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to have sex at me. We're going to have <laughs> sex with each other. I'm not a sex doll that you're working over. I'm a human being. I want connection with the person that's on the other side of me. And that is why every exercise in the program is exclusively centered around relieving tension from your body so you can go from just a head, you know, just like a brain walking through the world to someone who is embodied, someone who can feel their physiology, someone who's connected below the neck. That's, that's really it. Like all the things are resensitizing. Mm -hmm. Every exercise, how do you alleviate tension? How do you get more in touch with a full spectrum of your, of your body, the full spectrum of your sexual arousal arc? That's, that's really it. But, you know, wh whether it's, you know, guys who come to me and they've been jerking off to porn daily for 20 years and they can't get hard, you know, when they're not looking at porn or when they're trying to be int intimate with a partner, it's like, okay. You desensitize that by this. You resensitize yourself to your body with these practices. It's all the same thing. Can you be deeply in a relationship with your body, with your sexuality? Again, coming back to the, you can only penetrate as deeply as you have penetrated yourself. It's all the same stuff. 
you know, I wasn't going to go here, but you just brought it up. And it's, it's such an important concept when you are looking at some of the challenges men have with sex is porn's not necessarily bad or wrong, which I've heard you say before, but if you're potentially overusing it, then you're in effect desensitizing yourself to a normal human sexual encounter. Does that sound right? Totally. Yeah. I picture, I don't said this before, but it just came to me. Yeah. I picture it like if you are you know, a healthy, able-bodied person who can walk down the street normally, and one day you decide to use crutches, like you have crutch, crutches under both your arms, and you pretend like your right leg can't walk, yeah, you can still walk with crutches. You can absolutely self-pleasure. You can masturbate to porn. And sometimes that's fine. If you do this exclusively for years, maybe the muscles in your right leg might start to atrophy or whichever leg you're ignoring. Like, it's just, it is a crutch that you can overly rely on. And so there is absolutely... I have an article on the benefits of porn. There are any benefits of porn. I think that some people who live in a small town who are growing into their sexuality and wanting to explore or think of, you know, their sexual orientation or their sexual proclivities, they can explore and discover things and go, oh, this thing really calls to me. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought about this in my city of 2,000 people. And maybe I wouldn't have even heard about it until I moved to a major city. You know, there are things that can be functional and healthy and absolutely usable about porn, but it is in the chronic over-reliance on it. And I think that a lot of men, a lot of people, but for this for the sake of this conversation, a lot of men can use it as a crutch past their anxiety of, okay, I don't want to feel the potential rejection of going out and trying to find a partner, or if I have a partner, in asking, in sexually extending, whether I've been dating this woman for a year or we've been married for 20 years, you know, there's there can still be enough of a sting when, you know, we reach across the bed and she goes, I'm exhausted or not now. And it's, you know, it's the same, I'm exhausted that you've been getting for weeks or months on end, you know. It takes a balanced, centered man to not have the ego co-opt the sense of rejection, quote unquote, and go, oh, this means something about me. Oh, like, I gained weight over the last year and this is actually about my belly or, you know, she's too stressed because she's doing a lot of chores or she's stressed about money because I'm failing as a man. Like it's, it's easy to take it personally, to like find a way to make it mean, you know, my needs don't matter or I'm not doing good enough of a job or whatever the story sounds like. And so, hey, I can just go jerk off to an endless, like, plethora of millions of sexually available women who never say no on the internet. Of course, I will default to that. And if you default to that for, you know, months, years, decades on end, it'll have an impact. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and the deeper you go and the more often you do it, you'll just start to notice that the the content that you have to use to achieve the same... Um, result that you were otherwise searching for through it just gets more and more exotic, you might call it. But for someone who's realizing as they're hearing us talk about this, that, hey, maybe I have a little bit of an addiction to porn. You have a very good video in the bonus content of your course with Ben Goreski, addiction expert, talking about how to overcome a porn addiction. So if if you feel like that may be you on the other side of this, feel free again, 
check out the course. And so now let's go back to chronology. The at this stage, 2019, the fall, Dimitra comes to Vancouver. You two have been connecting online and you have a, you decide you're going to give something a shot. You don't know what that is yet, but let's have a one month date. Can you tell us how that started, how that went and take us all the way to where you two are now? Mm -hmm. So the initial plan, was like we didn't know that it'd be a one night, one month date. The initial plan was she was just flying to Vancouver for us to meet in person. And yeah, even before meeting, I said, she's like, what, you know, like, she might have asked at one point before she came, like, you know, how do you think it'll go? Or like, what's what's the plan? Like, should I book a return flight? And I basically said, no, book a one-way flight. If it goes well, you can, you know, stay for several weeks until you have to go back to LA to, you know, do whatever things she had scheduled in her existing life in LA. And if it goes terribly and, you know, we like have friend energy, but there's really, there's no charge. It doesn't translate to in-person. Then you can hang out for two or three days you know, I'll like take you to the beach. We'll have a picnic. We'll hang out and you can just, you know, get a flight and go back. And yeah, there was massive chemistry and connection and charge from the get-go. And so it did end up being a month-long first date and the end of that month basically culminating in the decision to, okay, I'm going to fly back to LA to break my lease, sell my truck, sell all my things and come back here and move in with you full-time and we're doing this. Like that was, yeah, that was the the obvious next step. We didn't know where it was going to go. We're just like, well, this is, this is just it. Like, okay, here we are. There's, there's no rationalizing our way out of like just the truth of the connection that we have. And yeah, we are now, we're coming up on our two year anniversary. We are going ring shopping in two days. Our, Our second... We've already been ring shopping. We're going to a second place just to see if there's a different ring she likes more just to make sure because, you know, we're going to own it for a lot of decades and wear it for hopefully 60 plus years. So we're making sure it's the right one. And yeah, it has been the most healing, transformative, nourishing relationship of my life. Uh, she's applied for permanent residency. She's she's from America. I you know We live in Canada. We're in Canada right now. And... We're just, we're doing it. We're going full blast. We, yeah, I mean, I can say endless things about her, but it's it's going great. <laughs> yeah, and we're, we'll dive into a bit of that. So two of the other areas that you said people talk to you about, one of them was path, purpose, and meaning. And Jordan, over the last, I'd say, seven months, you've been doing a fair amount of what I'd call white space sessions for yourself where you seem to be diving deep into what's my next step on my path? What's my renewed? Because you seem to, every certain number of years, like to have a pivot. Like to say, okay, well, I've obviously had some learning over this last five years. So the man I'm going to be over the next five years isn't the same guy. And you seem to have come to some realizations through the winter. What are some of the next steps for Jordan Gray? So far, you've been public about the change in your writing style and what you're going to write about and the topics you want to talk about. And you also, the third thing you said people reach out to you for is relationships. Should I stay? Should I go? And together you're putting on a course called Nourish, 
which was a word you just used when you were talking about your own relationship. And so those are the two things that I've seen, but also seen you geographically take a different direction. So it seems like there's a lot going on. And I don't think you've been public about all of it, but I have a feeling that you've uh, been doing a lot of deep work on what you want to be doing with this next stage. Yeah, I feel like I've I've named most of not all the pieces in some place. I think one of the, the earlier threads that really came through over the last six months is actually this, yeah, really ties into the, you know, earlier on this call when we were talking about how every book, every course I've made has been in response to, you know, the 200th person asking the same question. Okay, there's a lot of energy here. People are asking for this. I can make that. And while, you know, being of service and meeting people where they're at and leading with compassion is important, uh, there's also, you know, one concept that I've heard from Tim Ferriss, blogger, podcaster, you know, biohacker extraordinaire, life guinea pig, is, yeah, I remember hearing him say this thing of, his blog, he relates to as one for me, one for them, one for me, one for them. And how there has to be some balance of, you know, you speaking from your naturally emergent essence and also responding to market need. And I feel like I had I'd begun to overstay my welcome in not just creating products and courses for what people were asking for and doing deep dives. Okay, the market wants this. Okay, here's this. Um, but that kind of overly stayed its welcome and started to bleed into my writing. And I found myself writing, you know, for a couple of years, really predominantly leaning towards answering reader questions and deep diving into things that I knew would be compliments to existing programs or things people were asking about all the time. Um, but there was less and less like, yeah, less of a felt sense of spaciousness or joy or play or just where is me in the mix? Like I was increasingly just a, you know, a valuable article cranking out robot and less of a writer, artist, you know, my inner child, my joy coming through what I wanted to put out, having more of me in the mix. And so the last few months I have been both in the emails that I write to my email list and in, yeah, the transparency of my Instagram posts. I've been doing daily live Instagram videos and just like just connecting with people from just very me, not from my teacher, not in any performative way, or I'm not coming on and doing an hour of Q&A and giving targeted value. I'm just letting myself be a person a bit more, uh, a lot more. And that has been really nourishing, really, yeah, just great for me. And also, uh, surprisingly, unsurprisingly, has also been really feeding the people that also have always resonated with that essence in me that has come out in little, you know, fits and spurts and intermittent chunks. So yeah, a lot more me in the mix. And yeah, Dimitro and I are also looking at buying a place a couple hours away from Vancouver and just having an out of the major city, stripped down, simple, creative life of service. Like to me, an ideal day is waking up, doing an hour or two, or yeah, an hour or two of writing or creative work, doing an hour or two of coaching interviews, you know, like relational one-to-one or group stuff. And then, yeah, just like literally chopping wood, tending to a fire, making lunch, getting groceries, just like just having it be simple. I can, I can have this scaled 
of service life that reaches millions of people through my website and then engage with my body, engage with the earth. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness, yoga, go for a walk, read a book, play guitar, learn. Yeah. Yeah. You just described my perfect day. I've been, I've been working on building out the plan for the future and you just hit a lot of the notes on it. My wife is not quite on side with leaving the city. So I'm going to have to work on that piece of the plan. That's a decade away when the kids are out of the nest, but I, I love what you just said. For listeners who may not listen to Tim Ferriss that much, you described something as you were talking about how you're approaching that, and it really resonated with his methodology. I think recently I was listening to him with Adam Grant, and they were talking about how do you, when you start a project, how do you define success for that project? And one of the things, I forget who it was taught Tim this, but they said the easiest way to make sure you're happy regardless of the outcome is if the project you're doing is for yourself, then you're already successful just for doing the project. So even if only one person buys the course that comes out of the deep work that you're doing for yourself, you're successful because you did the course that you wanted to do and you learned what you wanted to learn in creating it. So I I thought that was just an absolutely beautiful way to approach life. Your new course that you're going to be offering, Nourish, do you want to tell the listeners what that's going to be about and get more and more people geared up for it? Sure. So it's actually closed. No one else can sign up for it. It starts It starts tomorrow. Oh, beautiful. Okay. And okay. We closed registration over a week ago. Yeah. That's that's a, a co-gendered offer. Dimitra and I are co-facilitating a group of, I think we have 14 people. It's a six-month program. It's like a live group coaching program, several calls a month. There's a Facebook group with a lot of engagement. Yeah. This is almost like V1 of Dimitra and I doing a live long form like held group together. Uh, we've done several one day events together where we're co-facilitating and That's we right. play off each other flawlessly and it's super fun. Yeah, this new experiment for us is, okay, what if we do that for half a year? What if we do that for, you know, if if and when this one goes well, what's a multi-year container look like? So yeah, that's already existing starting tomorrow and we're super excited about it. And for those of you who are listening, round one is done. We don't know what round two will look like yet or when it will start, but keep your eyes peeled. So Jordan, some questions that I like to ask a lot of the listeners. For you, what's your superpower? I mean, if I had one, the first one that comes to mind is either care or curiosity. Like I just I just care a lot and I'm also curious. I probably care more than I'm curious. So I'd say caring. I, just, I fundamentally want truth, power, aliveness for people. You know, like I frequently have newer writers or bloggers come to me and be like, like, tell me like why... You know, some people go like, oh, like don't blog too much because like this is content you can monetize and like you could like turn a ton of this stuff on your blog. You have like 10,000 plus word articles. You're going to turn into a little ebook. Why don't you do that? And I'm like, I'm very explicit. Like this, this is bad business. I'm not strategizing for monetizing. I care way the fuck more about millions of people having free access to almost all of my work than me finding a way to put a price tag on everything. That is not the point. Like, Mm -hmm. For me, the fact that over three to 500 people a day Google, you know, should I kill myself? Why shouldn't I kill myself? Reasons not to kill myself and find my article and read that and are personally touched by it. Like you can't monetize that. 
Like if that article paid me 30 grand a day, but it was behind a paywall, no. Like just no, it would not be worth it. Exactly. That's a beautiful way to look at it. Now let's flip the coin. What's something you struggle with on a daily basis? On a recurring basis. However regular you'd like it to be a struggle. Well, probably not like it, but... I'm sure there's a blind spot here and I can sit with it longer. My first unfiltered thought around it is if there's something that I'm struggling with for more than a couple of days, I either outsource it, like it's not a thing that's my zone of genius. And I so like in business, I just don't do it. I pay someone else to do it. Um, and if it's a thing that's you know personal, not high routable, and I'm struggling with it long form, then it's probably my mind's attachment to like liking the struggle. And so a thing that that would be would be what have I regularly struggled with recently? Uh, yeah, I'll do this. So over the last year, so we're recording this April 2021. We have had a full year of like on and off lockdowns and you know COVID isolation stuff. And I'd say between that and also being in a relationship that I want to be in for the rest of my life. It is easy for me. I'm very a hard-leaning introvert. I'm an INFJ, counselor archetype, not unsurprising. It's easy for me to hermit. And so I hesitated on using this because like because it's just like a pocket that I like sitting in. I don't like I don't resist it much. I I'm quite good not reaching out to friends or seeing friends super often or extending socially. I really can just like hang out at home and create for a long time without it bothering me. Like I don't have, you know, I have some extroverted friends, Ben or a mutual friend who like, and Dimitri, my partner to a similar, but maybe lesser extent, like they really get hungry for like, I need to hang out with people. I need to talk to friends. I don't have that as much. And so I can hide behind that and underextend to certain friends or yeah, I can, I can hermit more than my ideal life would want me to. So maybe the struggle is that it it doesn't register as much of a struggle. And, you know, I can do it more. That's a good way of looking at it. And you triggered something for me. Triggered might not be the right word because too many people use that to imply you triggered me. But something that jumped out, you mentioned it may be something that I'm struggling with, but I realize that I enjoy the struggle. When we've been on a call with some other men in the past, whenever they've, when some of the guys have expressed something like that, you've suggested a, a great book that I read last year that I enjoyed, which we'll put in the show notes was Existential Kink. So that's a book that allows you to explore your shadow and realize why you may actually keep committing the same behaviors over and over that you say you don't like. But the fact that you're committing that behavior over and over implies there's something about it that you do like and you can explore why. It's a great book. Yeah. Like what part of me loves this? Like that's exactly how am I totally it. benefiting from this and I don't want it to go away at all? Even if I've been in therapy for years, I tell myself I hate it. It's like, well, no, there's some attachment to it. So something to explore. Yeah, the best, like one sentence synopsis in that book is having is evidence of wanting. It's like if it's in your life, you want it. And people are like, no, but I've been trying to get rid of it. It's like, yeah, and something in you wants it. That's right. That's right. Jordan, how can our listeners find you? My website is the main hub, jordangrayconsulting.com. I think everything branches off of there. I've got books on Amazon. I've got an Instagram account that I do some stuff on. But yeah, the website is the main thing with 500 plus articles and video courses galore and 
uh, a tiny sliver of one-on-one coaching, but yeah, that's the, that's the place. And is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to get across to the listeners before you go? It isn't super tied to anything we talked about, but this just, this theme feels alive for me today and lately. Like I've gotten a, a thread of these clients recently. And so it just has some energy and I'm sure someone will benefit from it. Just this idea of it is so easy in the default codependent model of intimate relationship. It is so easy to, A, if you're single, want to find a partner to like kickstart the dead battery of your life to give you juice and aliveness and meaning and something to focus on. And on the other side of the spectrum, it is also easy to be in a long-term relationship with someone who you love or once loved and project your life dissatisfaction onto them because, oh, maybe this relationship is draining me or bad when the question should really be, am I showing up for my own life? Like, where is the fire in my belly? Am I showing up for my aliveness? Am I cultivating the juice and passion and excitement and enthusiasm in my own career, hobbies, friendships, you know, movement practices, like in my own life that is outside my relationship? Am I tending to that fire to then bring the overflow to my relationship? Or am I just going, ah, my life feels kind of dull. And so this relationship is kind of dull and maybe we should get a divorce. There's a lot of threads of personal responsibility and psychological laziness that I think go totally unexamined because the vast majority of relationship advice is deeply codependent and flawed. This is not me throwing every other relationship coach under the bus at all. There are some phenomenal providers. Many of them are close friends of mine, people that your listeners and your friends would know, know and be aware of. But yeah, just really when going across the BuzzFeeds and Cosmos of the world, just watch out for the default narrative of, you know, hey girl, you're blameless and perfect and it's all their shit. It's like, ah, watch out for that. If you get to be completely let off the hook by a 10 point listicle that you find on a website, take it with a boulder of salt and go, is this about really waking up and transforming or is this just getting clicks and is it ranking high because it makes people feel good? One of the guests that I talked to recently, Traver Bohm, who you may have just heard on Ben's podcast, he had a very good line that a therapist told him in that he put in his book, Today I Rise, was for a breakup or for a relationship in that situation, you're 50% responsible but you have to take 100% responsibility of your 50%. And so none of us are blameless. The other thing that really resonates, and I've, I've heard it from some of the guys, and, and we, it gets said often in our work with men's groups, is if you're bored, you're boring. And, and for those who aren't listening, what Jordan is saying, if I'm unhappy with my relationship with my wife, then in reality, I'm unhappy with the lack of effort and the lack of heart and the lack of connection that I'm putting into that relationship. If I put my full self in, odds are she's going to pull into that energy and we'll be connected together. But I'm, again, just like the sex, I'm stuck in my fucking head. I'm not in the relationship. So get out of your head, get into the bed, get into the relationship, be present. Jordan, this was an Absolutely blast of a conversation. Thanks for joining me today. I really, uh, really enjoyed talking to you. My pleasure. Yeah, this is super fun. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. 
make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy. Clint Murphy.